Zolly, can you click that over to the thing? I appreciate that. All righty. Hosea chapter three is where we're at this morning. Um, this is by far the shortest chapter in this, uh, in the book of Hosea. Uh, and in this, we find really, as a short chapter in this saga, uh, Hosea, we find it focused on the relationship of God toward Israel. Um, and that it, their, Israel's eventual reciprocation of love. Um, so just to remind us, Hosea in this uh, represents uh, God in these events. He's the one that is ultimately faithful. He's the one that is making provision and doing those things. And, and as we find this morning, he's the one doing the redeeming. And Gomer, his wife, is representative of Israel, who is left uh, and is living in an adulterous uh, fashion uh, and and pursuing other gods. And that's that's the illustration. The marriage relationship is illustrating their relationship, their, that intimacy that should exist between God and Israel. So we want to get into it this morning. Um, let's just read the first verse here, verse one of Hosea chapter three. Then said the Lord unto me, go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So he says, go yet. And that's a, it's an interesting phrase. I don't know uh, what uh, some of the more modern translations will translate it a little bit differently and probably a little more accurately, but it means continue. So his command to Hosea is, here is Gomer, your adulterous wife. She's over here doing what she's doing. Continue to love her. Just as God is continuing to love Israel, despite the fact that they are in being adulterous and pursuing other gods, living in idolatry. We'll remember that in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, God commands him, he says, the beginning of the word of the Lord to Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. So the idea isn't, isn't necessarily that Gomer is a prostitute, which is Typically, what is being promoted initially, I don't think that she was. I think that she has fallen into that, and we'll talk about that as we progress this morning. We want, we obviously need to have some understanding here, but uh, she was from this adulterous people. She was from Israel, and I think ultimately that's sort of where God was pulling from here. And so He took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bare him a son. And then we have these children's names. So God has commanded him. God has told Hosea to do this so that he might illustrate and redeem on our behalf the illustration of this adulterous people. And that's exactly what we find happening here. So we see this whole thing, and I, I don't know if you noticed how many times the word love or beloved is here in this text. This is the purpose of chapter 3, to talk about love. God's love for Israel and ultimately as I said earlier, Israel's reciprocating love of God. And that's eventual. That's something happening in the future. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13, if you will, for a moment. He tells 
Hosea to continue to love this adulterous woman, continue to love your wife. As we read in Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 34, beginning in verse 34. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he laments and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee, thy children together, as a hen does gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there's two things happening here. Number one, we have Jesus's lament, his anguish and grief over Israel. Now, consider hundreds of years have passed. They've been brought back into the, in, into the promised land. There's this unification of the kingdoms that has taken place. And Jesus says, listen, I would have gathered you together time and time again. I sent prophet after prophet to you. And you killed him. You rejected me. Over and over, God showing his faithfulness, God continuing to love Israel. Continuing to love Israel. And he says, you're not going to recognize me. You're not going to come to me until the end of time, ultimately, when you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to talk about that this morning as we, as we close. In Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11 has become a very instructive passage in regard to balancing the truths of Hosea and God's relationship with Israel and making proper and, and an appropriate application to the church. Because in Romans chapter 11, we find that dichotomy made. We find those connections made for us. So Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, Paul writes, and they, they also, if they abide not in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. Now remember, we're having this discussion in Romans chapter 11 about Israel. Here they are. They're the root. They're the vine. We have the Gentiles being grafted in, being brought into the stock of Israel. So we as believers in many respects, not all respects, but in many respects, first and foremost, we come into the family of God in the same way. And we come into this singular family of God through the singular mechanism of faith in Christ. All of that being true. We're brought into and made part of God's people through faith. That's the graft being grafted in. Now here in this portion of this chapter, he's talking about Israel again. right? Some of those branches, he says, were broken off so that there was space for us, the Gentiles, to be brought in. And he says, now listen, they won't be, if they don't abide in unbelief. In other words, if they come to faith, they'll be grafted in too. They'll be brought in to the same stock through the same mechanism. Okay? Don't miss that. Verse 14, excuse me, 24. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
I just want to pause there for a moment. There is this age, and and I tend not to subscribe necessarily to dispensationalism, but it is it a, an appropriate uh, interpretation technique in this sense, right? There's this period of time where God is dealing with the Gentiles. Israel is over here, and all the things that God has promised to Israel as a result of their rejection of him are happening. And they continue to happen until this period of Gentile salvation is concluded. And that's what he's talking about here, right? The, the, the blindness in part has happened to Israel, not only in part, because there are those Jews who would accept Christ even today, who have come to faith, who are accepting and have been grafted right back into that very family that they might have been broken off from to make room for the Gentiles. But in part, in nationally speaking, as a people group, in part, it's been withheld. If I can just use that term, it's an, maybe not 100% correct, but that understanding has been withheld from them so that this portion of the Gentile world, all those who will come to faith, come to faith. And we just cut it off there at that point. Now, there's maybe more to be said about that, but for our purposes this morning, that's enough. So, verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. In other words, all those who will come to faith will be saved. God, in his foreknowledge, knows who those are, just as he did with you and I. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. I want you to keep that portion in mind as we progress this morning, because I think that it applies in many respects to this end, this yet future time in which Israel will recognize Christ as the Messiah. That here they are, God is faithful to his covenant, he's faithful to his word, and we're about to talk about a covenant that God that, that is illustrating this relationship that Hosea and Gomer enter, enter into. In the midst of all of this, we understand, because we're looking back at the finished work of Jesus Christ, that God continued to show his love for Israel, and in fact, all of the world, and that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. So when we talk about God showing love to the nation of Israel and continuing to do so, he does, through, does so through his faithfulness to them as a people and as a nation. He does so ultimately, and probably the clearest description of that, in the same way that he did with the Gentile world through his son, Jesus Christ. He continues to do so. He continues to be faithful to the nation of Israel. He continues to watch over and steward them. He continues to deliver on the promises that he has made to them as his example people. And that will always remain true because God cannot lie, as the Bible says. So God shows his love to the nation of Israel. And he says to Hosea, listen, I want you to show love to Gomer, to your uh, adulterous wife. I want you to show love to her according to the love of God. In other words, love Gomer the same way that I love her without the condition. Right, Gomer, I will, you, Hosea, are forbidden from saying, Hosea, or Gomer, I will love you as long as you are faithful to me. He says, no, you love her according to the love of God. 
You love her despite all of her infidelity, despite her rejection of you, despite her going to other men. You love her anyway. Just as God is continuing to love Israel despite their idolatry, despite their rejection of him. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, if you will, for a moment. Nehemiah will be back toward the front, <clears throat> front of your Bible, unless I just lied to you. There it is. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, toward the front, toward the front. Okay. So Nehemiah ultimately is written a couple hundred years after. Uh, well, several hundred years after what we read in Hosea. It's a return of Judah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in the city of Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon. So we, we have a couple hundred years from, the Assyri from Israel going into captivity in Assyria, and then Judah goes into captivity to Babylon for the same reasons as Assyria, for their idolatry. And we have in Nehemiah this coming back. And ultimately, God has told us that there'll be a, rest, a rest, restoration of the kingdoms. There won't be two kingdoms anymore. There'll just be one. And that's, what we, that's where we kind of pick up in Nehemiah, this coming back into the land, repopulating, rebuilding. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. Nehemiah says, Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to leave them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night, excuse me, to show them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water in for their thirst. And he goes on and he continues to describe faithfulness after faithfulness of the Lord to his people, Israel. And he sort of begins in the beginning as he's delivered them out of Egypt and in the wilderness, despite their unfaithfulness. Remember, why were they in the wilderness? Because they were unwilling to trust God. They sent in the 12 spies. Ten of them came back with a report that, yeah, it's indeed, sure is a land flowing with milk and honey, but there's giants. We'll be crushed. We'll be destroyed. But Joshua and Caleb, those faithful too, said, no, we trust the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? We should go and possess this land. And the people listened to the other 10. They chose not to trust God, yet God remained faithful. He continued to show them love in the midst of that wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, to the extent that he provided water, he provided food supernaturally, he protected them from their enemies, their clothing didn't wear out. I mean, that's good or bad, depends on how much you like to change your clothes, but right, he took care of them and preserved them until it was time for them to enter into the land for that next generation. He continued to be faithful in Psalm 106. And I'll tell you that Psalm 106 has also become a very, uh, I find myself in Psalm 106 as I study through Hosea quite often because it's a similar description. Here we are reviewing the faithfulnesses of God, his mercies extended, him showing love to the nation of Israel unconditionally. Though they failed, he remains faithful. 
Psalm 106, verses 43 through 46. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And he remembered them, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried uh, them captives. Ultimately, you'll remember in the book of Daniels we studied through, there was this softening of the kings of Babylon toward Daniel, toward the nation of Israel. When they left, who funded the rebuilding of the temple in the book of Ezra? Babylon did. Who funded the rebuilding of the walls and the streets of Jerusalem? Babylon did. There was this softening. God remained faithful to his people despite their unfaithfulness, despite the fact that he had to correct them. He was correcting them out of his faithfulness. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, to you and I, who are his children, we would expect correction because he does love us. Now, Deuteronomy is up here. We're going to come back to that verse a little smaller so that I remember that. Clever. You're lucky I remembered. We're going to come back to that one in, a, in another section. The entire thing factors together. In Ephesians, right, there's some connections to be made for you and I. Some by way of application as we look at the love that we enjoy, that we receive from God. We are now grafted into that family. We are part of the same. We would expect the same unconditional love extended toward us. The same faithfulness of God extended toward us. And in fact, as we read through Scripture, as we get into the New Testament, it's exactly what we find. That God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the, what we experience as His people, His children, is exactly the same as the nation of Israel experienced. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, husbands love your wives, even also, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So we have this idea that this command, first of all, husbands love your wives. And not only that, but to love them the way that Christ loved them, just as he's telling Hosea, love according to the love of God. How did God, how did Christ show his love toward us? Well, he gave his life. He paid the penalty for our sin, and it continues on. Why did he do it? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Jesus Christ gave his life so that he might be that propitiation. He became sin, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, so that we could be made his righteousness. So that the standard that God had established all the way at creation this is the standard of righteousness. My righteousness, everything else is unrighteous, could be met. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So we have this, this interjection in some respects, right? He's talking about Christ dying and he's speaking in general terms. That applies to you and I individually, that we individually will receive that cleansing. And ultimately, as a group, the church, the people of God, will be refined in the same sense, that he might present it to himself, the church, you and me, the, the, the corporate body, 
of Christ, spotless, without wrinkle. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. And 1 John, so we have the hope and the, and the confidence that we are recipients of the love of God. That we are the recipients in the same way, unconditionally, unreservedly, for the purpose that we might be spotless before God, that we might be declared righteous, that we might be justified. But he continues on through the New Testament as we look in 1 John chapter 4. I want to read verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God and loves not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested or shown, revealed the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might love, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God. But we have to understand that the Bible declares each one of us at enmity. We are enemies of God in our natural estate. We didn't love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary, the stand-in for our sins. This confirmation that you and I as believers have received the same unconditional love from God, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our failings, despite our sinfulness, Christ would come and die for you and I. And we have the opportunity as we, as we progress this morning to look at this, he says, listen, beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. Keep that thought in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. Now, we compare this and we contrast this as we look in, he, in Hosea chapter 3. We have the love of God that's described, and then we have this example of Gomer describing man's love and what it's like. So Gomer was loved by others because she sought after them. It says here that she was beloved of her friend. She was beloved of her friends. So she's seeking out after those other things. Israel took to other gods and loved, as it says. So the King James says flagons of wine. If you read a more modern translation, the words translated flagons of wine literally means raisin cakes. So if you're reading a newer translation that says raisin cakes or something along those lines, that's really what it means. It doesn't mean wine. It's a whole different word. But those raisin cakes, those were specifically used in the worship of Baal. And this is what they love. This is what the nation of Israel is all about. This is, this is where they're at. The love of man is fickle. Fickle simply means that it changes frequently, especially as regards one's loyalties, interests, or affections. I Googled that. I kind of knew what fickle meant, but I wanted to give you, so there you go. That's the definition that Google provided me. It's changing. It's conditional. We love God when we perceive that God loves us. But when somehow we feel out of favor with God or we perceive that somehow we've, we've lost relationship, we no longer love God. That's, that's man's love. It's conditional. Now, we need to take that thought captive because it's not true. 
we need to hold on to. We need to realize that no matter what has happened, God has not left us nor forsaken us, and he promised us such. And he delivered on that promise through his son, Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, turn there with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, all the way back in the very beginning, we see the fickleness of man's love. In Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember, we have the fall of mankind, and that's recorded. And we pick up in the very beginning of the chapter, we, we encounter the serpent who's more subtle than any other beast. And the serpent comes in, and he says, listen, did God really say? And he has this interaction with Eve, and you can read all about it right here in this chapter. But at the end, ultimately, they submit to the temptation that is put before them. And ultimately, what is the temptation? That God is somehow withholding something from them, that God is less than good. That's ultimately what the temptation is. It isn't all about eating the fruit. It's about causing them to doubt that what God had withheld from them was somehow conditional. Listen, God doesn't really love you, therefore you shouldn't love God. Be fickle. That's the temptation in many respects. So verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, there's all these benefits. It looks good on the outside. All of these things are there and present. But for me to accept that, I have to reject that God is, in fact, good and has withheld it for my best. She took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. The love of man tends to be conditional. It's changing based on the circumstance. Now, I'll just tell you that I'm as fickle as any human being. We've all, to whatever degree, parents, we've all experience those things where it doesn't matter what our children do, we're going to love them. We, we have firsthand experienced the love of God in some respect toward those that are in our family. We have this very slight interaction with this very small understanding and comprehension of the love of God towards us through that one mechanism alone. And here is God who is perfectly, as, as we read in 1 John, God is love. The love is an expression of who he is and what he's all about. And he's not going to deny himself. His love is not fickle. His love is unconditional. So we get into verse 2, we encounter this messy business. Verse 2. Hosea chapter 3, so I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. I want you to imagine the scene here. Here's Hosea. He has to go and he buys Gomer to himself. Now, she's not been sold as a slave. She's out there engaging in whether it's ritual or professional prostitution. And there's no other way 
to say it, there it is. So imagine the shame when the client shows up and you walk in and it's your husband. Because that's exactly what happened here in this account. The shame. Now we all encounter that same shame when we encounter the living God in relation to our sinfulness. Adam and Eve did. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Go back there. Immediately after they've partaken of the fruit, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, a couple of things happen. And those are results of the shame associated with sinfulness. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, And the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Right, this is their common practice. They walk with God on a regular basis. But this time, it's different. This time, they're confronting God knowing that we have sinned. We have fallen short. We have done that which God has commanded we ought not to do. And so they hide. And God called unto them and said in verse 9, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God responds in verse 11. And he said, I, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now listen, God's not adding any. As know the answer to where they're at. He knows the consequence that he gave them. He knows that this, he, he knew before he created them everything he was going to have to do to redeem mankind. That he would leave himself, take on flesh, come down to the earth and die on the cross so that he might redeem Adam and Eve and you and I and the nation of Israel, those who would reject him. But here they are confronted with that sin and walking with this righteous holy, just God, and encountering him in shame. I want you to notice a couple of things from this account. God came to them anyway. This is their normative practice. He knew they had sinned. He came to them anyway. Did God remove himself from Adam and Eve? No. Did Adam and Eve step away from God? Absolutely. They stepped away from God. From God. They the one, are the ones that hid in their shame. The sin that we might hold is going to separate us from the God that is right there present. He doesn't remove himself from us. But as a result of our shame, we step away from him. Now, God, in his faithfulness and his goodness toward you and I, we also find repentance and reception. I want to look at that in Luke chapter 15. If you'll turn there with me, we find it illustrated by Jesus himself in the parable of the prodigal son. The son who would take which was ultimately not his. He's not the eldest son. He's not due any inheritance by law. 
Yet the father in his goodness gives to this son his inheritance, and this son goes and squanders it with riotous living, living in sin. That's what he chooses to do. And he's confronted with that. Let's begin Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he decided, and he divided unto him his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And we had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. Now, I just want you to pause here and think about this for just a moment. That here he is, he's living in sin. He's got nothing left. And what happens? Famine. Famine. There's a famine in the land. There's an act of God to turn his heart. That God, even though this man is living in sin, he's choosing to be there. That's where he chose to go and spend his time and his efforts and his money. God was still engaged in his life. Verse 15, and he went and he joined himself to the citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs, to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. So here he is. He's out there feeding the pigs. He's got nothing. He has no food, nothing whatsoever, so much so that he says, this, is, this slop is looking pretty good. He's confronted with his sin. He's confronted with the, what he has sown and what that has brought him. What he is now reaping is a result. That God in his goodness would say, I'm going to give you over to what you have indulged yourself with so that you might know where you stand. Verse 17, and when he came to himself, And when he comes to himself, ultimately, that's a statement about him thinking about where he's at the same way that God thinks about it. This young man, at this point, I'm convinced, repents. He says, listen, I I am in sin. When he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. He confesses his sin. He owns every part of it. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now just note here, this is how low he feels. This is where he understands his position with the father to be. I am no more worthy to be called one of your sons. And at some point in your walk of faith with Jesus Christ, you're going to encounter something in your life where you have failed or succumbed to sin, and you're going to say, I am no longer worthy to be called the Son of God. And what you need to understand here is that God did not change. That the salvation that he offered you fully purchased on your behalf, the justification, the declaration of righteousness upon you did not change. 
that before you at that moment is the temptation to say that God is in fact not good as he said he was, just as Adam and Eve had the temptation put before them. We have to understand that our security as the children of God is unshakable and unquestionable in regard to our relationship. So there we have it. That's where he feels like, that's where his perception is, that's his understanding. And we find all of that to be blatantly false as he comes into the presence of his father. And he arose and he came to his father, but when he was yet a far way off, his father saw him. It tends to indicate to me that there was some effort on the part of the father to pay attention, to be looking for his son. There was a hope and a desire that his heart would change. And it says that his father had compassion and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It doesn't sound to me like the relationship, as far as the father was concerned, has changed. That this young man who was, uh, who was living in sin, who had re- was now reaping what he'd sown at the hand of God, brought back to a place of understanding of where he was and his ultimate need for the provision of the father. Which is exactly where every one of us would have been when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. An understanding of our need and the provision of the father. And so he runs to the, he returns to the father, the father sees him, he comes running. And he says in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. We have this messy business, redemption. People are messy, even Christians, and we have to understand that. The redemption is a messy business. We find it messy and a messy illustration here in Hosea. It deals with the basest and the most inordinate desires of the heart. And God in his love and mercy has stepped into your mess, into my mess, into the mess of the nation of Israel to redeem us and to set us apart. And when he does so, it doesn't change. There is nothing that could ever that you or I could ever do that would separate us from his love. Right? Romans 8, 35 and 39 tells us that there is nothing, principalities, powers, nothing will separate us from the love of God. There is no sin ever committed that he didn't know before its commission. Just as Adam and Eve, God knew that in the beginning before he even created Adam and Eve, before he gave them the command, before he fashioned the serpent, before anything ever happened, that he would have to redeem mankind. He knew that he would leave it all. He knew that he would suffer all of it. He knew what it would cost him, and he did it anyway. Mankind is a terrible investment. And God said, I'm going to do it anyway. 
That means that for you and I, there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to surprise God. There's nothing, no sin that we're going to commit that somehow we're going to remove ourselves from us. We'll be unacceptable before God. That we will have lost our salvation. That we will have stepped out of, out of relationship with Him so far that there is no return. That does not happen. And in 1 John 1.9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like this prodigal son who came to the father, who came to his senses, who realized that I have sinned before heaven and earth. And when he makes that confession, what happens? They celebrate, they rejoice. Everything is at his disposal just as it is for you and I in the relationship with our Father. Redemption is a messy business. God is in the business of redemption. Now, the cost, I want to talk about the cost. As I read through this and I'm studying through Hosea, and I'm like, man, can you imagine all this? And you tally up the cost of the grain and all these things. If you go back into the book of of uh, I apologize, it's either Exodus or Deuteronomy. God says, this is how much an ephod, uh, not an ephod, an ephath, a homer, which is so many ephaths of, sorry, that's why. I tallied up what it costs, right? You're, you're nearly 100 pieces of silver. Now that's for grain, this is barley, so it costs less, but all, all of that together, right? And I'm like, oh man, this is so much. And then I do some further study and I'm like, yeah, 15, 15 pieces of silver, according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, is only half the price of a slave. It's not that much. And when we look at barley, when, when we look at that versus grain, which is what God sets as sort of the standard for those agricultural products and their costs and all those things, right, we're way down here. Ultimately, Hosea didn't pay very much for Gomer. He didn't pay very much. The low price, I'm convinced, illustrates the value of Gomer or, or Israel or mankind. Now, when I say illustrates the low value, right? The, perhaps a better way to say it is the low return on investment. <laughs> like I said, God is willing to invest everything in us with no return. We're not worth the price that has been paid for us. God gave everything. However, God paid everything that he had, all that he had, leaving, leaving heaven himself to rescue us from the sin that we were trapped in. God would have been perfectly justified and destroyed Adam and Eve. He told them, in the day that you eat thereof, you'll die. Instead, what did he do? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promised a redeemer. He promised, ultimately, we know looking back at that promise, leaving heaven behind, disposing himself of the glory and the majesty, all of those things that are his by right of being God, so that he might die on a cross. We look at the, the value, what was paid here, and it isn't very much, but it's probably all that Hosea had. 
prophets were not popular. Especially prophets like Hosea that are pronouncing imminent judgment. It really wasn't a lot, but there's a couple of things that I want you to consider. Turn with me to Lamentations, if you will. Lamentations, right after the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah, not Israel. But he is, again, an unpopular prophet because he's foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and as a result of their idolatry. When we get into Lamentations, it's his lament, it's his grief being expressed about all that he's prophesying. Here he is, a righteous man. This is where God has chosen to put his name amongst us. This is where the temple is. This is where he dwells with his people. And he's going to destroy it, and he laments. His heart is broken over the sin of his people. But in the midst of all of that, we read in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Right? God was perfectly justified in destroying Adam and Eve. He's perfectly justified in destroying you and I. We're no better than Adam and Eve. Our natural estate, by default, we are bound and destined for hell. Yet God in his goodness, in his mercy, had compassion on us, sent his son. And not only that, but those mercies and that compassion is new every day. In other words, it's renewed and unfailing. It does not change toward you and I. That should elicit within us a response as we read here in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Not in myself, not in how good I can maintain or, or works or those kinds of things. No, I will hope in him. What he's already finished, what he's already done, what he renews on a daily basis, whether I'm good or whether I'm bad. His compassions don't fail. We pick up the same theme in the New Testament in the book of Colossians. If you'll turn there with me. Colossians chapter 1. I want to read verses 21 and 22. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. We were alienated, we were separated. The Bible would say of you and I in the New Testament that we are enemies of God, yet he did everything necessary to bring us unto himself. One chapter forward, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together The word quickened means made alive. Has he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses? You know what that word all means? It simply means all. Everything in the past, everything right now, and everything going forward. All 
trespasses, all sin, everything that you and I were ever going to commit, we're forgiven all of it. Verse 14, blotting out the writing of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's where it was paid for. Right? There's this long list of all the stuff that you and I are going to do. Sort of, now listen, I don't know if there's literally a book. I suspect that there's literally a book. And that's for our benefit. It's a visual. God already knows that it's all up here. But it's all written down. And what is it? He blots out the handwriting that was against us. Every sin that you and I were going to commit, every offense, it's, era- it's not even erased. It's blotted out. It's made unrecoverable is what it means. When God says, listen, I'm not going to remember your sin anymore, it's exactly what he means. I will no more remember it. It is gone from my memory. I've forgiven you. I've nailed it to the cross where it was paid for by my son, Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So here it is, Jesus Christ conquering all sin and death, bringing you and I from that place where that is our destiny because of our sin and putting us here where our new destiny is to be conformed into the image of Christ and to live with him forever. The cost to you and I was really small. But the cost that God was willing to put out there was everything that he had. Verse 3, Hosea chapter 3. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. So we have this idea that that this this agreement is struck. Listen, Gomer, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pull you out of this. I'm willing to give everything on your behalf. Israel, I'm going to do everything necessary to pull you out of the sin that you were in. And I'm going to sequester, I'm going to set you over here. And you're not going to be, there's this period where she's separated. She's sequestered as a trial period. She's set apart only for God. Israel is only for God. They are to worship him alone. Now, I'll just spoil if you haven't read the Bible. They fail, all right? They, they can't even keep this little trial period up. But God already knew that. And nothing changed for them. He still, those compassions and those mercies were still new for them every day, just as they are for us. But they're set aside for a period of time. There's this this time of proving, Gomer, you're going to prove your fidelity, your commitment to this covenant that we are now entering into. Again, you're going to be over here for this period of time. But you notice that, that God, in the midst of all that, he says, and I will also be for thee. I will only be for you. God is for his people. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's read uh, verse 6 through 11. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So here is God speaking to the nation of Israel, this generation that gets to go into the promised land, and he's, and he's reminding them through Moses, God chose you above all else. Verse 7, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. Listen, he didn't choose you because you were a lot of people, because you were a mighty nation, none of the. No, no, no. All the things that are on the outside, he didn't choose you for those reasons. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. The faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why was God faithful to Israel? Because he loved them. Why is God faithful to you and I? Because he loves us. And he proved it when he took the time to send his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Now I want to make a, a, an application to the church here, to you and I. Because on the backside of this, he tells, he tells the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, in verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, and he keeps his covenant. Verse 10, And he repays them that hate him to their face. To destroy them, he will not be slack to them that hates him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, which I command thee this day to do them. So here's what he tells the nation of Israel all the way back there. I chose you because I loved you. But I'm going to deal with those who hate me. And you notice here that in that there's a contrast. You either hate God or you love God. And here in the Old Testament, the, the measure of love or hate to God is obedience. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and love the statutes and the judgments. Do what God has told you to do. That's how you don't hate him. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? That here we are, have it, we, we, is what is put before you and I as believers, his love is unconditional. He's not going to love us as a result of our love for him. He loves us already. He sent his son to die for us. We accept it by faith. The way that we have to show God that we love him is our obedience, just like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel throughout their history didn't love God. And I know that because they continually worked against him. They continually rejected him. But for you and I as believers, the same thing is put before us. Do I walk in obedience? Do I show love to God? That reciprocation Or do I withhold it? Do I show him that I hate him? 
In Philippians chapter 2, as you turn to Philippians chapter 2, I want to I throw something out there for your consideration, right? We need to understand that I'm not talking about a, a works-based salvation or even a works-based maintenance of our salvation. We have to be careful that that's not how we ever convey this to anybody because what we're talking about here, showing love to God by walking in obedience, doesn't equal works-based relationship. It has a completely different motive completely different heart. Instead, the obedience that we would show is simply the reciprocation or the showing back of love. That we would work, that we would strive to walk in obedience because God has loved us first. That we would lay down our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is our reasonable service. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not all as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? We have the opportunity set before you and I in the absence of God that we don't see him face to face to work out our own salvation, to grow in it, right? This is talking about the faith, the walk of faith, the relationship with Christ that we have that grows stronger every day. That's what it's talking about. When we're talking about working out our own salvation, that's what it is. I learn to trust God more and more the longer that I walk with him. I want to be like Joshua and Caleb, who are unwavering in their devotion and their trust of all that God has promised and said he would do and his ability to, to, to provide on everything that he said he would provide. The problem is, and where we encounter, is that sometimes we tend to be like the other 10 spies. That doesn't mean that I can't be more like that tomorrow. It doesn't mean that God in his goodness won't, because he promised that he would. The predestined plan for you and I as believers is to be more like Christ tomorrow than we are today. So here we are, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, very convicted, that we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I'll just pause there for a moment. The way that we conduct ourselves, the way we live, conveys to the world around us a message. We're either known as the sons of God or we're not. We look like the world or we look like Christ. Now, it may be an imperfect picture of Christ, but nonetheless, that should be our goal. Do all things without murmuring disputing is that you might be, and it means known as the sons of God. But here we are in this crooked and perverse world. We live in the society that is completely opposed to God. Yet we would stand in obedience to our Lord period. Holding fast the word, holding forth the word of life, so we're standing upon truth, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Do you hear what Paul just said? I am willing to give my life for my witness of Christ. 
And you should rejoice if I have to give my life for the witness of Christ. Now, I pray that I and you, that we are never faced with that decision to give our life or to deny Christ. I pray that that is never put, put, put before us, that we are never persecuted to the extent that that would happen. I'm also under no delusion that it is a definite possibility. And I would pray that even though there would be grief and mourning, I would hope that there would be grief and mourning if I had to give my life, that you would also rejoice. You would rejoice that the witness of Christ stood firm. That's what Paul is saying. What God says to you and I, to the church, in some respect, from the book of Hosea is, listen, I am setting you aside for the purpose of being my servants. That I'm setting you aside to be that which I have called you to be. Now, in verse 4 of Hosea chapter 3, he says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. I will just tell you that every one of those things was something that either led them to or was part of their idolatry. Every one of them. He says, I'm going to remove out. Now, it's also true that they weren't going to have a king. They weren't going to have a priesthood. They weren't going to have those things. But these are, this is all a reference to their idolatry. They're, this is a period of purification. Israel were idolatrous junkies, and God is sending them to rehab. There's going to be a period of time where you're going to have withdrawals. You're going to try to go back. You're going to return to it over and over. There's this desire and this lust to return. But God is saying, I'm removing it from you, and I'm setting you over here separate from, I guess, <laughs> idolatrous junkies. So we have kings and princes. They were established by Jeroboam I. We looked at this history. We're not going to hit it too hard. He established the kingdom of Israel on idolatry. That's how he kept control. He talks about sacrifice in Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. All the abundance that God provided for them in his mercy and compassion toward them, they gave to their false gods. Their sacrifices were provided for by God. Verse 17 over there in chapter 2, For I will take away the names of Balaam out of their mouth, and they shall no more remember by their name. He's going to remove idolatry from Israel completely. They're not even going to remember the names. We talked about that's something yet future. The word image, it simply means statues or, or those groves, those things that they would do out there as reminders of their pagan gods. The ephod. Right now, there is an ephod that the priest wears, and that's described. You can go read about it in the book of Leviticus. There, This is how what it should look like. This is this is what it represents and all of those kinds of things. What they're talking about here is this false priesthood. This false priesthood. Those prophets of Baal that we talked about. Mount Carmel, the whole thing. The level, that slippery slope of idolatry to the point where here it is. We have 400 prophets of Baal and all these other hundreds of prophets of all these other gods. This false priesthood. In the book of Judges, chapter 8, verse 27, we have Gideon. He's come in. He's delivered them out of the hand of Midian. It says that Gideon made an ephod, and the people fell into idolatry to this ephod. 
right? He's got this piece of clothing that he made. It was like a, it's like a custom t-shirt. Hey, we defeated the Midianites kind of a thing. I don't, I don't know. It just says Gideon made an ephod. And the people fell into idolatry. You remember the, the, the serpents, the fiery serpents that God sent into the camp because the people were failing and they got bit. And he says, Moses, you need to make the brazen serpent and put it up on a stick. And all they have to do is look at it and they'll be saved. Yeah, they fell into idolatry to that too. So much so that God said, listen, we're going to just destroy the thing. This These are false priests. They fall into idolatry. Teraphim. The word teraphim means idol. In Genesis chapter 31, you have... Uh, now listen, don't laugh if I get this wrong, because I might. All right, you have Jacob. He's gone in, his father-in-law Laban, right? And he has... Rachel and Leah, I'm getting some affirmative nods, so I must be doing okay. And they're going to leave, and they're going to go back to Jacob's land of promise, right? And what does Rachel grab? The gods of her father. You know what the word there is? Teraphim. The little statues, and she hides them, and Laban's all mad. They stole my god. What kind of a god can be stolen? Really, let's face it. That's what it is. All of this is reference to the idolatry. God says, I'm going to remove it from you. This lengthy time of purification and Israel, all of this time, and we're still, they're still in this time of purification is waiting for their Messiah. They're waiting for the promised deliverer. They're waiting for Jesus. They missed him without even knowing what they're, they knew what they were looking for, but without accepting it, they're waiting ultimately at this point for his return and their restoration to God through him. That's what we read about in verse 5. It says, Afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek, after, seek the Lord their God, and David their king shall fear, excuse, David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Right? So we have this looking forward to something in the latter days, at the end of time. This is what's going to happen with Israel. So clear from the, from the biblically contextual standpoint, there are yet unfulfilled promises, those things that are going to happen. They're in this period of purification even now. And here, from a contextual standpoint, right, the text itself tells us this is something yet to happen. Turns me to Zechariah chapter 13 for just a moment. Zechariah chapter 13. Verses 1 through 9. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, when you, when you read that, this fountain being open for sin and uncleanness, I want you to reference in your mind John chapter 4. That here is Jesus talking to the woman at the well, this living water. It's the same thing. This is the same water that's going to be doing the cleaning, Jesus. And I shall come to pass in that day that the Lord of hosts, that it will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. We read that in Hosea chapter 2. And they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the people, excuse me, the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And I shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say to him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies 
right? This prophecy, this false prophecy is going to end. That's what's going to happen there. They're going to kill them. They're going to kill their children, even if necessary. Pretty drastic. Verse four, and it shall come to pass in that day that the promise prophets shall be ashamed. Every one of his vision when he has prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, but he shall say, I am no prophet. I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle for my youth. And one shall say unto them, unto him, where are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall say these with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is, a, this is something speaking about Jesus, and there's, there's more to unpack there. But it says, Awake, O sword, again. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. This is a reference that Jesus made of himself in the New Testament. Right? When, when or it was applied to Jesus in the New Testament, when he, they were coming to take him, to crucify him, put him on trial and to crucify him. This was referenced. Smite the shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, John chapter 10, and the flock will be scattered. Now they're ultimately brought back together. And who are they brought back together by? The shepherd. And it came to pass that in all that land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried and they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. So ultimately, as we progress through Zechariah here, we have this understanding that there, that, and it's talking about Jesus. You're going to have to trust me on that. We don't have time to unpack it, but it's clearly referenced in the new Testament by Jesus himself in the gospel. So you can go, that's your homework. Go unpack Zechariah chapter 13 in the new Testament. But in the end, a third part, all that is Israel will be saved, Romans chapter 11. A third of them, and how many is a third? I don't know. There's not a number. A third of them are going to be refined. They're going to be purified. And ultimately, what does that purification look like? It's coming to a point of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it comes to. And when they come to that, I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. Just as God said at the conclusion of Hosea chapter 2, that people that said, they're not my people, they will be my people. You remember that one of the kids, is, one of Hosea's children's name means, you're not my people. But they're looking forward to this time. And ultimately, that quote in Hosea, you'll remember in chapter 2, is applied to the Gentiles, the church. We see this great consistency of the church and Israel being graphed together. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Actually, skip that one. It's very similar to this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Verses 16 through 18. Now, I'll just tell you that this is a quote from Amos chapter 9. Uh, Amos was a contemporary of Hosea, was also a prophet to Israel. And so very, there's a lot of similarity. But here we find this picked up on in the New Testament, Acts chapter 15, verse 16. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. 
that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and that all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Well, that's 15. So that didn't sound right. Acts, no, that was right. That was right. So there's this looking forward to you. see that reference in Hosea chapter 3, the king of King David? That's Jesus. He's a descendant. I mean, go read his lineage. He's a descendant of David. The promise that God made to David that there will always be one of your seed on the throne is a reference to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ and his eternity. And here it is, this description of him setting up that kingdom. He's going to build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. He's going to be the one that all people turn to, that everyone will say, every knee will bow to, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, we desire, as believers living in this age, we desire all the more, as we see the world around us, descend further and further into sin, further and further away from God. We desire to see all of this, this restoration, this coming together, this revelation of Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel and time being concluded. Because for you and I, to be after this body, to be dead is to be with Christ. It's better. But here we are. And so we're living in this world that is corrupted by sin. And there's this great desire to see everything brought into subjection, to be delivered from the effects of sin, to live in a world of perfection. Just as God declared it all the way back in the beginning, it is very good. The new heavens and the new earth. We're looking forward to, we have this hope of all of those things. For you and I, the word of encouragement is don't grow weary of well-doing. It's easy to throw your hands up. The whole world is against us. Every, we, and, and while it may be true, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have to persevere in the Lord despite the corruption that we are surrounded by. We are called to be salt and light. In the Sermon on the Mount, John chapter 5, Jesus talks about being salt and light. He says, listen, this is the purpose for which I have lit you, that you may give light to those around us. And the light shines the brightest in the darkest places. That is our purpose. Now, we share with the nation of Israel, we have a shared calling. They were God's example people. They were those that would testify and witness of his existence and his love and concern for mankind, his promise of redemption. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to close with these two references. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that that as you have received us, how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Right here it is. This is the gospel. This is true. This is what God's word says. This is how you should live. This is how you should conduct yourself. All the more. Continue in that, he says. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, your, your being set apart, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor not in the lust of concupiscence or evil desire, 
even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond to defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all. As we have also forewarned you and testified, for God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Right, so there's this shared calling. The nation of Israel, they were to live a particular way so that they would have a particular witness. Don't be like the other nations. Stand out. Be different and apart from them. I will tell you, God says, how you will live so that you might be my witness. And the same purpose exists for the church. We are still his witness. God says, I will tell you how to live so that you might be my witness. And it feels really hard sometimes, doesn't it? It feels like we're the lone ranger everywhere we go. We're just running around, us and Tonto, everybody shooting at us, and nothing getting better. That's what it feels like. But that's not the reality. And you know what? Even if it was the reality, it still doesn't change the calling that we should be the lone ranger, that we should let everybody shoot at us, that we should be riding along, continuing in the things that God has called us to. Now, along with that calling comes hope. And we have the same hope that the nation of Israel had. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so them which sleep in Jesus Christ will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Listen, you can't stand on somebody's grave and stop them and get them from heaven. That's just not going to work. I know it's a silly illustration, but that's, that's the point. <laughs> We're not preventing them. For the Lord himself shall descend. Now, this is the fact. This is the hope. The Lord himself, who can stop him? Nobody. It's the Lord. Not a counterfeit. Not, not, not one of these people over here. Jesus said, hey, be careful when they say Jesus over here. Or Jesus over here. It's going to be clear. We will know. Everyone will know. It's Jesus. All right, there's more, more to say to that, but it's going to be very clear. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Here it is. God's returning. Jesus Christ is coming back. The hope of Israel, the hope of the church is returning. Now, I don't know when that is. I am convinced that it's probably not tomorrow. But who am I to say that God can't bring to put into action and and fulfill all the things that I see in Scripture that are yet remaining to happen quickly? I, I, I'm, the answer is I'm nobody. God is God, and He does what He wants. But what I do have is the certainty of that hope that He is returning. That, even, that if I'm dead before He comes back, or if I'm alive when He comes back, my hope remains. And I want to walk in obedience because when I get to heaven, when I get called up, when you get called up, we want the Lord to say unto you, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. 
That's why I would walk in obedience. That's why I would serve him. That's why I would show my love back to God by doing the things that he told me to do, by walking in those ways, by, not, by persevering and not giving up, even though it seems the world around us is against us. I read an article just this morning about the Muslim Brotherhood and their infiltration. and the, It seemed hopeless. We should have seen it coming. We've got our government in collusion, as far as I can tell, with them. And we're going to probably, I mean, you know, if, if they had their way, we'd be put to death tomorrow. And you throw your hands up and you're like, oh, are we ever going to make any headway? You know what? Even if we don't, I'm not going to change. And you shouldn't change. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Persevere. God is faithful. He is coming back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We praise you uh, for this little chapter in Hosea that confirms to us your love and concern. Lord, that even in the midst of our sinfulness, you would come and redeem everything around us. That you would redeem even us in our sin. Lord, we praise you and we thank you, looking forward to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, just as Israel looks forward to the hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ to them. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We pray for Israel. We pray for those, uh, Lord, we, we pray for their salvation. We pray that they would have uh, eyes to, eat, to, he to see and ears to hear, and maybe even vice versa. Lord, whatever it takes that they might come to faith, just as we would pray for anyone. We thank you, Lord, for the confirmation and the witness that they still have of your faithfulness. Not because they are good, but Lord, because you are good. We rejoice in that fact. Lord, as we have opportunity now to, to fellowship with one another, uh, God, I just pray that it would be rich and meaningful. It would be a knitting together of hearts in the Lord. Lord, help us that we might not feel like the Lone Ranger, that we might feel like those that are running about with the church, with the body of Christ. And God, all the more closer we get to your return, Lord, all the more our hearts cry, come quickly. What hope and what joy it puts before us. By your grace, Lord, help us to persevere as we can only do it by your grace. We praise you and we thank you and we rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.